This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We have a wonderful presentation to wrap up uh, the series tonight. Um, and as I promised, we will have a final exam at the end. So I hope you brought your number two pencils. Oh, you won't need them. Um, our speaker tonight is uh, Mike Rabo. Mike is a dear friend and, and colleague. Mike is a professor of medicine uh, at UCSF uh, and holds the Helen Diller Family Chair in Palliative Care. Um, he's also the director of our Symptom Management Service, which is our outpatient uh, palliative care program uh, based at the Cancer Center uh, here at UCSF. And Mike is really a pioneer in outpatient uh, palliative care and a nationally recognized expert in that area, working with lots of other um, teams to help them establish palliative care services in the outpatient setting uh, as well as in the inpatient setting and doing research to understand how to better care for people uh, in that setting. Um, Mike has also had a longstanding interest in, uh, in caregivers and how we care for caregivers, and that's what he's going to share with us this evening um, in his talk titled It Takes a Village, Caring for the Caregiver. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Mike Rabo. So this is just what it's like, right? You go through the whole thing and then think about the caregiver, maybe, at the end. Um, so this is last, but it's absolutely not least. Um, in many ways, we can think about serious illness itself and, and death as being preceded by family caregiving. Most people in our country who are dealing with serious illness, uh, who have died, who have friends and family to perform this service, um, have a lot of their care being administered, being directed, being supervised by folks who do not know how to do that job, but it is a key job. So you can think about informal caregiving as the kind of medical care that's provided by non-professionals, by friends, families, loved ones. And if you look at that list of uh, things that make up informal caregiving, you can see that it's essentially everything. Transportation, shopping, homemaking, emotional support, nutritional care, nursing care, so all of a sudden you get your RN degree, personal care, financial management. So family caregiving is a huge, huge job that is done by many people in our society. So about 44 million people perform the job of being a family caregiver. You can see from the pie graph that family caregiving is done by about a quarter of us. So a quarter of the United States has this job, this difficult and important job. I guess the other thing that you can note is that the distribution between men and women suggests that family caregiving is essentially a job performed by women, some men, but the vast majority of family caregivers are female partners and wives, mothers and daughters. So I structured my comments before the question and answer at the end 
to really focus in on understanding the five burdens of family caregiving and then think about the five opportunities that clinicians have in terms of helping the situation with family caregiving and supporting family caregivers. I'm going to be presenting the data that we have based on the science of family caregiving, the epidemiology, that what we know about family caregivers, both in terms of the burdens, the difficulties of family caregiving, as well as the opportunities that clinicians have. These are the very same things that I teach to medical students and to other learners in medicine, to practicing clinicians. Very useful, I think, for us to think about from a clinical perspective, a la mini medical school, and I think also probably very informative or at least thought-provoking for those of you who in this audience serve as family caregivers or imagine yourself soon serving as a family caregiver. So Mrs. R was the elderly wife of an elderly man, Mr. R, who had pancreatic cancer. I was interviewed um, as part of a project that we did a number of years ago and provides, her and her family provide some of the quotations that I'll use to illustrate some of the points that I want to make. So the first burden of family caregiving is how much time it takes. How much time it takes. Ms. R said, to me, it just never stopped. It wasn't the care, it was the whole commitment. It never went away. And this is what we hear over and over and over again from informal family caregivers. That in addition to the number of hours per day spent, one of the biggest challenges about family caregiving is you never stop worrying about it. So if you're spending an hour managing the medications, but the other 23 hours worrying, that's a, not just a full-time job, that's a continuous job. So we know in just raw numbers of hours that Americans spend as family caregivers that about a fifth of family caregivers report spending full-time or constant time caring for their loved ones. And the majority feel like that they're on duty most of the time. We know if you just look at some particular diseases, you can estimate the number of hours that a family caregiver will need to provide. For cancer, it's over three hours uh, per week of extra family caregiving care. And another big challenge about time is that it's unpredictable. This idea about being on call, that disaster or something urgent can happen anytime and that you'll need to drop what you're doing to provide the care. So that the length of a loved one's illness is unpredictable, the process of their illness, the functional decline that they might suffer, all unpredictable. So difficult to know what you're going to be able to do in a week or in two months or in a year if you've really made this commitment to being the family caregiver. Another part of the challenge around time is logistics, how much it takes to get everything organized. Many family caregivers will tell you that they ended up reinventing the wheel, that they learned by the end of their job of a family caregiver 
all these ways to do the job that no one told them about in the beginning. So that you have 44 million people all replicating the same process of learning the hard way how to do this job. So caregiving takes a long time. It takes a lot of time. And the second burden of family caregiving is that it's actually just very, very physically demanding work and actually dangerous work for some family caregivers. So think about who family caregivers are, who those 44 million people are. Many of them are elderly themselves, perhaps frail themselves, perhaps smaller significantly than the person they're taking care of. So sometimes we have family caregivers who weigh 100 pounds taking care of a loved one who's 300 pounds. How does that happen? We know that family caregivers have this daunting physical task and they're typically not trained in how to do it and how to lift and how to change the sheets with someone who's in bed and how to do the hard physical work of moving and lifting and positioning their loved one. And as a result, it shouldn't be surprising the data that we have that suggests that family caregivers are injured doing the work that they've chosen to do. So family caregivers suffer significant physical injury, back strains, and other injuries as a result of their work. So I know I'm not painting this great picture. No one wants to run out and sign up for this job that takes an unpredictable but inordinate amount of time that you will get hurt from physically doing and that it's going to cost you a lot of money. So this is not a great job description. But the financial costs are huge. There's essentially uncompensated work that family caregivers are doing in the thousands of thousands of dollars per family caregiver per patient. Now there's the outright costs of things that you are buying and there's also the missed opportunity, the loss of income that you might have gotten if you were spending all that time at your job rather than family caregiving. Pretty amazing number that the annual cost in the United States of family caregiving, this is being paid by us, by loved ones, $522 billion. And I've been talking about family caregiving for a number of years, and every time I give the talk, almost every month, I go back to get the most updated number because that number keeps on skyrocketing. Just a number of years ago, that number was estimated to be around 250 billion dollars. And so it's more than double just in the last couple of years. And the costs, the economic disruption of paying all that money ends up having real implications for families. So that on average families spend about 10% of their income for family caregiving, taking care of a loved one. 20% of family caregivers quit work or make major life changes because of the financial costs of family caregiving, more than 30% of families lose most or all of their savings taking care of a loved one. So families, family caregivers are spending a huge amount of money and suffering the consequences of that lost income to be able to provide this care 
to a loved one. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the finances and what goes on in the relationship between patients and family caregivers. Uh, But you can see there's a huge financial cost. So as you might imagine, patients themselves and family caregivers feel very, very differently about the finances. So patients say, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want you to spend $522 billion on me. (laughs) Family caregivers say, of course we're going to spend whatever it takes. Of course we're going to go bankrupt because of this. Of course we're going to lose our savings. Of course I'm going to quit my job because of this. Because I care. And so you have a little bit of this sort of reverse gift of the magi between patients and family caregivers. Where patients say, you know, I don't want to be a burden. And family caregivers say, I'm going to take care of you. Interestingly, I just saw a survey the other day about how not being a financial burden to family members was one of the most important. In in the survey that I was seeing that Steve showed the other day at a meeting, that not being a burden financially was the most important priority for people who were facing the end of life. So both sides really mean it. Both sides really mean it. We know that the finances of end-of-life care have real implications. People make choices about whether or not they want to pursue comfort-only care, whether or not they might consider physician-assisted suicide based on the finances. So the money really is a major, major issue. But wait, there's more. Remember, there's five. So this is four. So one of the most major burdens of family caregiving is the risk to the mental health and well-being of the family caregiver, him or herself. So yes, family caregiving can afford family caregivers a large measure of satisfaction and a sense of privilege, even gratitude, for being able to do that job. But some of the most common emotions are negative emotions. Guilt, anger, resentment, and importantly, a sense of inadequacy of never really knowing that you're doing a very good job. So it shouldn't be surprising that the risk to family caregivers of depression and anxiety, formal medical diagnoses of these mental illnesses, is very, very significant. So this situation where you're spending all this time, where your life is disrupted, where you're spending lots and lots of money, where you're being injured physically because of the work, where you don't know if you're doing a good job, where you're exhausted, leads to depression. So the data suggests that about half of family caregivers, half of family caregivers are depressed. even more if the family caregiving is considered intense. It's more likely that women or wives are depressed as a result of their work than husbands or men. And very, very 
important, I think, from my perspective as a physician, is that caregivers are more likely to be depressed as a result of the clinical situation than patients are. In some ways, it's easier to be a patient facing a horrible diagnosis, a serious disease, than it is to be the caregiver of that patient. At least in terms of depression, you're more likely to be depressed as a caregiver. I have a theory about that, because I spend 30 minutes in a visit attending to my patient, checking in with them, finding out how I can help them feel better. And at the end of the visit, I look at the caregiver and I say, how come you didn't give the medicines four times a day like I asked? Right? So we treat patients very, very differently than caregivers. Our expectations are very, very different. But important statistic to remember. About a third of patients' caregivers develop post-traumatic stress disorder after time in the ICU with their loved one. Very, very difficult. We think and rejoice about patients getting out of the ICU, forgetting very often that a third of their loved ones are going to experience depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. We know that family caregivers are more likely to suffer complicated and prolonged grief if they weren't prepared for the death of their loved one. Or some more recent data, um, if they felt like they weren't able to keep the promises that they made to their loved one. And one more, the health of the family caregiver herself. So Mrs. R, the wife and family caregiver of the patient with pancreatic cancer, said, my health isn't red hot, but I don't worry about it at all. So family caregivers, as a general rule, put the needs of the ill person, of their loved one, ahead of their own. They minimize the severity of their own problems. They forego or delay their own health care. So they're not getting the care that they need to stay healthy, to do the work that they need to do. They also are under a tremendous amount of stress. We know as a result of the stresses and the burdens of family caregiving that physiologic things happen to family caregivers. That there are declines in immune function, increased inflammation in the bodies of family caregivers. There is, are indices of increased aging as a result of family caregiving. We know very, very clearly that the risk for heart disease and for stroke and for cancer increases as a result of being a family caregiver. And ultimately, there's an increased mortality associated with family caregiving. So this is a job that takes a lot of time, that you're not prepared for, that costs a lot of money, that makes you depressed, and that you die from. <laughs> Who, which 44 million people are ready to sign up tonight, right? So this is a very, very, very important element, is that family caregivers have an increased risk of mortality as a result of being a family caregiver. So this, the classic study was done a number of years ago, um, a four-year study that looked at family caregivers who found an increased mortality risk 63% higher. 
And maybe it's because they don't take their own medicines. Maybe it's they don't go to the doctor. Maybe it's because of the emotional stress. Maybe it's tied to depression. We don't know exactly all the mechanisms that might be involved and which are most responsible. But I think most people feel pretty comfortable concluding that family caregiving puts family caregivers at significant physical risk. So the next question I have is what clinicians can do in support of the work and the lives of family caregivers. So five clinician opportunities. So Martin Buber uh, wrote, in the beginning was the relationship. And first and foremost, I actually think that the relationship between the clinician and the family caregiver is key. I don't know if anyone else showed this comic during the (laughs) mini medical school, but no one should leave medical school without this comic. The physician says, there's no easy way I can tell you this, so I'm sending you to someone who can. (laughs) Right? So we are there. We're in the room, and it's not something that we can delegate to someone else. This relationship that we as a patient's clinician have with the family caregiver is key. So one of the things that we know is necessary is excellent communication between the family caregiver and the clinician. Mrs. R said, we moved him, her husband, to the palliative care unit almost more to avoid having to worry about not having a doctor who we could talk to than because he was in such bad shape. So took him out of his home where he wanted to die to a palliative care unit to make sure that there was an adequate relationship with a physician that they could talk to because the communication and that relationship was so important. Family members, family caregivers need to know that the clinician is comfortable talking about the end of life, talking about difficult topics. So clinicians need to be able to talk. They need to be able to provide clear and timely information specifically This works a little bit better in October, but it's still relevant. (laughs) The physician says it's a very simple procedure. We slice off the top of your head, scoop out your innards with a spoon, and carve out your eyes and mouth. Yeah? So this is good, clear communication. (laughs) So people really need, and we know that family in particular wants the truth. They want the straight scoop. We know that family members have real decisions to make. How to spend their time, how to spend their money, when to go where, who to be involved. So information needs for family caregivers are paramount. And information about prognosis, much more important generally to family caregivers than decision-making opportunities. Family members don't generally want to make all the decisions, but they want all the information. They want typically to have some control over the timing of that information. Um, But they know, we know from good studies that family members don't want false hope. They want the truth. And clinicians can provide the truth, and, and even more, they can provide some proactive guidance about things that might be coming down the road or ways to assess elements of clinical decision-making. So 
family caregivers and patients need to understand what the efficacy might be or lack of efficacy might be of a feeding tube or of CPR at the end of life. Um, need to understand what the process of withdrawing a ventilator might be from a patient who's on a breathing machine. Um, Importantly, family caregivers need to understand the role and the potential benefits of care in different kinds of settings, including care at home. And there's more to communication than just talking, right? So here's the classic physician, patient, or family caregiver communication. Stanley, we need to talk, so please don't interrupt. (laughs) The third important element of family caregiver communication is a clinician who's able and willing to listen. So there was a reverend named Reverend Steele who wrote, to listen another's soul into a condition of disclosure and discovery may be almost the greatest service that any human being ever performs for another. Listening. Listening to what family caregivers have to say. We have a lot of data about listening. One of the most important things is to not talk when you're listening. (laughs) So there was a study done here at UCSF a number of years ago that was looking at the proportion that physicians talked versus family caregivers talked in the ICU. And physicians talked 71% of the time. And family caregivers, family got to talk 29% of the time. And that's perhaps not surprising. It certainly isn't to me. The interesting part of that data was that the more family caregivers got to talk, the more satisfied they were and the less conflict there was around decision-making with the clinicians. So... If there's a battle going on between family members and clinicians, the clinician's best strategy is just to stop talking and do more listening. So clinicians can try and elicit family members' perspectives and opinions with open-ended questions. And importantly, we need to listen to what family members are saying with sort of two ears. We have to pay attention to both cognitive communication... 2 plus 2 is 4, and we can answer those kinds of questions. But we also have to pay attention to the fact that family members are often communicating around just affect, around feeling. They're expressing emotion. And emotion doesn't require an answer. There is no answer to emotion. Emotion requires our response, our responsiveness, We don't have to be responsible for an answer to why this is happening. Because very often those kinds of questions are really an expression of fear or sadness or shock or vulnerability. So clinicians need to be good communicators. We need to be better communicators. And if we were going to do one thing, we should just listen more. We also have the opportunity to do advanced care planning, and I know that Rebecca Sudori talked about this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about advanced care planning. But it is quite clear that advanced care planning can go a long way to helping people feel better, more satisfied to get the kind of care that they want and to help family caregivers feel better about the work that they're doing. 
very important to help family caregivers understand what their role is and what their role is not when they're a durable power of attorney for healthcare, when they're considered the surrogate decision maker. And it's not about the document, as I, I presume uh, Rebecca said uh, when she spoke, that having an advanced directive in place scanned into, into the electronic medical record is not where the benefit of advanced care planning comes from. It is from the discussion. It is from the discussion between patients and family members and in the discussion between patients, family members, and clinicians. So one of the most important things we can do is help everyone understand how the other is feeling. I have advanced care planning conversations in my practice all the time where people who live together and have lived together for 50 years say things to each other that they've never said before. And that's an amazing opportunity. And sometimes it takes sort of the safe space of a clinical visit to allow that kind of communication to happen. A third opportunity for clinicians is to provide support for care at home and for hospice care. So Ms. P was the daughter of the patient who said, it's incredible what people at home can do and what they want to do just to keep people at home. When they go into the hospital, they become patients, but they're really people. In the hospital, you can forget. They're all in the same kind of rooms. They're all in the same kind of gowns. They all have tubes and things hooked up to them, but at home, they're people. They're in their house. They're surrounded by their photographs, the things that they worked for all their life. They're people first, and then they're patients. We know home is where most people want to be, and in particular where most people want to be at the end of life. So one of the opportunities to support family caregivers is to really support the processes of having patients be at home and to be in hospice at home. A daughter said, it was never presented to us what it would entail in terms of taking care of him. So it's easy to say that we want to have dad at home. It's actually really quite hard to care for a loved one in a safe and effective way at home, and it requires a lot of support. So home care, providing care for people at home, is an amazingly difficult, complex task. It's really making family members the medical representatives in the home and providing real medical service. So look at these numbers. A fifth of family caregivers taking care of someone at home do dressing changes. How? Most of them haven't been trained. 40% of family caregivers administer medicines, um, half managing more than five medications. That's a lot to remember. That's a complex process. A third of family caregivers manage non-oral medications. Anywhere you have to put a medicine other than in someone's mouth makes it more challenging. Yeah. Family caregivers have to do relatively complex medical assessments, figuring out when to give PRN, that's an acronym for as-needed medications. Take one every two hours as-needed. As needed for what? How do I know if they need it? Family caregivers often have to decide when to call the physician, when to take a patient to the emergency room. 
no reason that you should know how to do that. Something that clinicians don't know how to do necessarily well and is difficult for us. So some of the things that clinicians can do to support family caregivers is, in fact, help with managing medications. Medication orders with very, very specific guidelines about as needed for when. Sometimes I like to talk to family caregivers about the process of, rather than saying as needed, saying, why don't you offer this medication every six hours and allow your loved one to refuse it? So you don't have to think too much about it. You can just set an alarm on your phone or on a home clock and offer the medicine and allow it to be refused if it's not needed. Some help about when to call and to whom they should be calling when there's something that goes on in the middle of the night. Whether or not there is some mechanism for non-telephone-based communication with clinicians and how to use 911 in the emergency department even for folks who we know want to stay at home. And importantly, I think physicians, clinicians can think of family caregivers and treat them as part of the clinical team to uh, help initiate referrals, to provide some training to family caregivers. And ultimately, I think it is the clinician's responsibility to orient and to prepare family caregivers for this task that few will feel prepared for. Most people who've been family caregivers will say that they had no idea what it was going to entail, how hard it was going to be. Clinicians have a really important role recognizing and recommending to patients and families when hospice might be the most appropriate care to help people live as well and as long as possible. Often, hospice is the ideal system of care for people at the end of life. Many people who've seen hospice will say it's the best medical care they've ever received or their loved one has ever received. Hospice care allows for the coordination of multiple services where people want them, which is at home. And remember we talked about the risk of death, the increased risk of mortality for family caregiving. One of the ways that we know can mediate that increased risk is hospice care. Because family caregivers of people who are in hospice have a decreased risk of dying. There is something about the support of hospice provided to patients, provided to family caregivers, that helps mediate that risk of dying. So that support for your patient is also support for you as a caregiver. The benefits of decreased risk of dying as a result of being a caregiver were found even after patients were in hospice for just a few weeks. So there's something really quite powerful about the intervention of hospice in support of patients and families. So the fourth clinician opportunity is empathy for family, relationships, and emotions. One of the daughters said, the burdens just brought us closer. I felt very privileged to be able to be helpful to him and to be helpful to my mother. And it occasioned a lot of the most precious moments of connection that I'll always remember. So I think this is true for a lot of family caregivers, but it's obviously not the whole picture. 
because family caregiving is incredibly difficult. It happens around illness, serious illness, and around dying. Family caregivers have to balance their own work, their own families, their nuclear families perhaps, their own kids. It intensifies family dynamics and often forces people within a family to reestablish ties. Very often in the hospital and in clinic we meet family members who were estranged from the family for years and years. So you see these family dynamics and you get it why it worked better when estrangement was going on. <laughs> right? All these people are shoved into a hospital room or shoved into a small space, a small home, into a small situation with each other. And it's very, very difficult for many families to have that much going on, those relationships going on. It's a difficult time. You've got a commode in the living room. You've got people having wounds and nakedness and all sorts of other elements that are threats to, uh, potential threats to people's sense of dignity, even their humanity. So a very difficult time emotionally. And so clinicians have a role with family caregivers around this in terms of screening um, for and validating common emotions. Family caregivers generally don't know what the other 44 million people are thinking or doing. They feel like they're the worst family caregiver in the world because they missed that one medicine or someone was calling for 20 minutes and they didn't hear because the TV was too loud or because they were asleep or because they were running back from the pharmacy. Yeah? So one of the things that clinicians can do is really validate this experience of how difficult it is to reassure about the quality of family care being provided. There was a family caregiver who brought in um, an immobile loved one to the hospital. This person had been cared for so lovingly that after a year of not being able to move himself, he had zero bed sores. He had zero bed sores because his daughter was unbelievable. And when I said, my God, you've taken such good care of your father, she started crying, which is what every family caregiver does when you bring up the quality of the work that they're doing. Because she felt like it wasn't enough. She felt guilty about what she wasn't doing. She didn't understand that she was extraordinary amongst the 44 million. So we can be reassuring, but we have good data to show that even just listening with empathy decreases the risk of family caregiver depression. So all clinicians have to do, again, is just listen. And that can have a huge effect on this real outcome of depression. Our empathic responses go a long way. And ultimately, there may be some family caregivers who need to be treated for their depression, who need to establish a relationship with their doctor or with their loved one's physician to be able to be treated for depression. Clinicians also can recommend proven interventions. We know a number of things from some uh, good research that can be helpful. The things on the left, in white, are things that 
can be done for the patient that improve the outcomes for family caregivers. Adult day care, home care, palliative care, things that can support the patient and help the patient do better. The things on the right are things that the family caregiver, her or himself, can do to improve outcomes. So respite care. The number one recommendation I have as a clinician to family caregivers is that they build respite into the work that they do every day. They need to take some time to get away from the situation, even briefly, some real time to recuperate, some time to do the tasks that they have to do to maintain their regular life. Yeah? Um, Social workers can be helpful. Psychologists providing support can be helpful. Caregiver education about how to do the job, about how hard the job is, can be helpful. And um, a, a recent study showing that online symptom report can be helpful Again, providing additional resources and support to the family caregiver. And finally, the fifth recommendation I have about what clinicians can do to support family caregivers is really attend to family caregiver grief and bereavement. And that doesn't start after someone has died. The data that we have says that what we do before a patient has died is more important for family caregiver grief and bereavement than what we do afterwards. So if I'm talking about grief and I'm talking about loss after someone has died for the very first time with the family caregiver, I've missed my best opportunity to have the best outcomes. The process of preparing anticipatory grief has to start ahead of time. We know that folks who are not prepared for the death of their loved ones are much more likely to suffer complicated grief. So the extent that I can provide caregiving support before the death of a patient is my best opportunity to provide support to caregivers. After death, there's still more work to do for sure. Important to try and normalize the feelings. And we know that some relatively small things that clinicians can do improve family caregiver outcomes, including just sending a note, a condolence call, or even attending the funeral of a loved one. So that connection, that continuation can be very, very important. And we know that there are proven recommendations for grief to help family caregivers have better outcomes in their grief daily activity and routine, journal writing, social ties, um, independence and resilience, helping people sort of reclaim, reintegrate the death into their life and reclaim some of their independence, as well as grief counseling and support groups, something that hospice typically helps arrange for folks they know. And most hospices are willing to provide, even to family caregivers who loved one wasn't provided care in that hospice. So I think adult education suggests that you can remember seven things. I'm going to ask you just to remember three, so you've got four left for the rest of the night. (laughs) The data is very, very clear. The data is strong to suggest that caregiver outcomes are improved 
if clinicians are empathetic, just listening decreases the risk of caregiver depression. We know that preparation of family caregivers for the death of their loved ones decreases complicated grief. And the third most important bit of data is a really important one. We know that hospice decreases the risk of dying for family caregivers. So remember three things. Yeah? Remember that clinicians need to be empathic and to listen, that they need to talk about the impending losses before they happen to prepare family caregivers, and that for people at the end of life, hospice makes great sense for patients, but also for family caregivers. So this talk isn't about how to be a great family caregiver, but I did want to provide some of the resources that are very useful for you or that you might recommend to others in terms of how to get some of the support that family caregivers might benefit from. And there's lots of websites. There's apps for your phone, for your laptops. There's books. There's formal training and there's support groups for family caregivers. On the web, a number of resources that I think um, could be very useful to you or other folks um, exist as websites. I highlighted in red two of the most important ones that I think. Caregiving websites are sort of uh, listed, uh, some of the top ones, the top 20 are listed at this site. So if you kind of want one-stop shopping for caregiving resources on the web, um, that site probably is going to be the most useful, providing top 20 uh, web-based resources. And then the Family Caregiver Alliance provides lots of resources um, for advocacy and for support of family caregivers. One of the websites had these 10 tips for caregivers, which I think replicate some of the points that I made during uh, my comments. So I wanted to end with these, uh, the 10 tips for family caregivers. Um, The first, seek support from other caregivers. You are not alone. Yeah, so there's 44 million of us out there. And actually being able to talk with other caregivers, learning what they know, sharing what you know, so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel, and so that people can understand that what they're doing is an amazing job. Take care of your own health so that you can be strong. Uh, you know, you have to be there to provide some help. So taking care of your own health is really, really key. Um, accept offers of help and suggest specific things um, that people can do to help you. I always say to family caregivers that you should have a list with you at all times. So when someone says, oh, let, just, just let me know what I can do, you can say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Here's my list. How many hours do you have? Because I have it divided up by hours. Yeah? So you should have a list, a very, very clear list about things that you actually need uh, to be done. Learn how to communicate effectively with um, doctors or other clinicians. And importantly, make sure that they're communicating effectively with you. uh, Caregiving is hard work, so take respite breaks often. I like to think about something that you're going to do every day, something that you might do every week, something that you're going to do every month. And obviously, the thing that you do every day may not be taking a four-hour break. It may be taking a four-minute break. It may be taking a breath break to breathe in deeply, before you walk into your loved one's room. 
But something regular and something that you can look forward to, it's like a good vacation. If you know you've got it on the horizon, sometimes you can get through a difficult time. But respite is really, really key. Um, watch out for signs of depression. Don't delay in getting professional help when you need it. So this risk of depression is real. Paying attention to that. Um, be open to new technologies that can help you care for um, your loved one. So new technologies, web-based resources, things on your smartphone, reminders. Um, organize medical information so it's up to date and easy to find. Make sure legal documents are in order. Um, give yourself credit. Give yourself credit for doing the best you can in one of the toughest jobs there is. So that's something that I think every family caregiver needs to do a better job of, giving themselves credit for doing essentially an impossible job that they don't get paid for, that they're not trained for, that harms them in some very significant way. So we have to encourage all of us, we have to encourage our family caregivers um, to feel okay, to feel good, to feel proud of the work that we're, they are doing um, and to not feel badly about the work that they cannot do. There's times when I'm pleading with family caregivers um, to get more support to move their loved one into a nursing home because what they're trying to do can't be done at home or to have someone admitted to the hospital because what they're trying to accomplish at home can't be done. It requires a team of nurses and physicians working full-time. Yeah, To replace a busy family caregiver typically requires a whole team of trained clinicians. So I wanted to uh, end there. Uh, this quotation is from Dame Cicely Saunders, who is the founder of the modern-day hospice movement uh, in England and in the United States. How people die remains in the memories of those who live on. So in many ways, when we think about the end of life, when we think about death, we might be able to just define it as death is what the family remembers. So the family caregiver is everything during the life of a patient, and a family caregiver is everything uh, that remains and what death means after a patient has died. So I want to thank you for your attention and open it up uh, for questions. Thank you. So UCSF itself doesn't have any caregiver training that I know of formally. Um, the best resource is probably the Family Caregiver Alliance, uh, where you can find some of the local resources. I'd also point out the Alzheimer's Association, um, which is a great organization in terms of uh, caregiver support. Uh, people taking care of loved ones with Alzheimer's disease um, require a lot of support. And some of the trainings that are offered locally are offered by the Alzheimer's Association. They are organized around Alzheimer's disease, but almost everything that they have to say about family caregiving applies to other patients with other diseases as well. So I routinely recommend people to their local Alzheimer's Association for generic family caregiver support. Um, and I've never had anyone come back and say that they weren't welcome, so feel free. Yeah, so the question is about how you deal with family members who are in denial about the patient's 
uh, disease or their uh, impending death. Um, so it's a great question. I wish I had the perfect answer. I know I do not. Um, I think the most useful thing to start with is to recognize that denial is useful. It serves a purpose. And most of the time I proceed with the presumption that uh, people are being motivated by love and the consequences of love, which include fear, anger, guilt, and all sorts of other things. Sometimes I think if in relationship with someone who's in denial, um, you can communicate to them that you actually do understand that they care, rather than saying, how can you be so cruel as to deny what's going on, that that opens up lines of communication and people can get beyond some of the pure denial and the defensiveness around denial to potentially open up other lines of communication. But denial is useful. And we can presume, I think, in most situations that people love their family members. And we could also presume in most situations that the denial that they have is serving them in some way. And I may not have a better alternative than their denial. It may be what they need or what they need then. So I at least like to give an open invitation for people to think about uh, me as a resource or other people as a resource to, to talking when there's some opening in the denial. So given that uh, denial is useful for people and it serves a purpose, I typically don't try and rip it away because I know that then I have to be prepared to scoop that person up and take care of them for the rest of their life. <laughs> but I do want to give people a chance to feel safe enough to reflect perhaps a little bit deeper around some of the issues. And sometimes, say, in an ICU setting, when a loved one is in the ICU, not communicative, not long for the world, um, I ask people to spend some time in the room to see if they can get to that place of empathy, the same place of empathy I'm trying to get with that family member but to have family members really try and empathize with the patient. Is this the kind of care that your loved one would want? Were they this type of person who would want to be passively receiving care, to not be conscious, to not recognize their loved ones? So time can be very helpful in these situations. Um, difficult situation, difficult not to get um, at odds, but I go back to that data that says the more I listen rather than talk, the less conflict that there is. So typically, I really just want the person in denial to talk more, to reflect more, and to know that I'm there to listen. But very, very difficult um, situation. Thank you, absolutely. So um, the comment was about how much more you can benefit the earlier you might be able to be introduced to the support of hospice, you and other members of the family, for sure. We use hospice very, very late. We recommend hospice very, very late in the course of people's illness. Um, every comment I've ever heard about the timing of hospice referrals from patients and or families is, we wish we had known about this earlier. We wish we had started this earlier. 
And as all of us can imagine, we know that the good work of hospice is more likely to be able to be accomplished if there's some time to do it. It's very hard for anyone to come into a situation literally in the 11th hour and make as much progress as might be possible if you had some more time to do the good work with children, with partners. Uh, so yes, um, earlier referral to hospice is probably better in most situations uh, for family members, for patients themselves as well. Um, we know that clinician comfort with referral really is what determines how early clinicians refer. And of course, the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges is the financing of hospice where we make it an either or. Most people, we know most Americans don't like either or situations. We like both and. And we probably deserve to have the benefits that hospice can provide even when you're pursuing clinical interventions like transfusions and IV fluid and other things. So we've set up this situation where you have to sort of sign on the dotted line and say, I'm not going to do any other kinds of clinical treatments, uh, which is a real artificial distinction and, and makes it very, very difficult uh, for folks to access hospice. So concurrent care, concurrent hospice, and curative attempts, management attempts, probably is the right solution. And in many ways, palliative care attempts to sort of fill that hole of providing some of the benefits of attention, hospice care, interdisciplinary team to patients who are continuing to pursue attempts to treat or control their illness. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.